How can an organizational structure that deviates from the norm be empowering, transformative, and unleash new levels of collective intelligence? To answer this question and to go deeper on the leadership implications, this week I'm delighted to be joined by Lisa Gill. Lisa was included in the Thinkers 50 Radar 2020 and coaches teams and organizations who are interested in becoming self-managing. She also facilitates leadership courses that train people in a more adult-adult coaching style of leadership. This conversation was recorded on June 17th, 2021. For leaders keen to introduce any kind of sweeping organizational change, whether that happens you know, quickly or over a long period of time, what would you say are the most important qualities from a personal standpoint to make that kind of change happen? Yeah, it's a really nice question because I think, I think people don't always think about this. Um, for me, I think what comes to mind is humility, first of all, because I think a lot of leaders think about changing their organizations and don't realize that they also need to change themselves. Um, so humility, I think, helps in terms of really being open to feedback, being open to that I'm going to make mistakes, that I don't have all the answers, um, and, and kind of role modeling vulnerability, because that will be important for other people to come on board with the change as well. Um, and in addition to humility, I think curiosity and openness, um, to be really curious about what people are concerned about what their skepticisms are what their questions are to really listen to be open to what they have to say and to create the space for that um so i think these are quite different leadership qualities compared to what some of the archetypal leaders of previous generations might have uh might have developed in terms of charisma and direction and that kind of thing it's really a much more humble style of leadership that's needed i think yeah, it's fascinating to watch really as well in, in terms of um, hybrid workplaces as well, how the kind of qualities and what's being asked of leaders is changing mm-hmm. so rapidly in terms of, you know, as, as you mentioned, kind of being, you know, more humble, being kind of more of a coach, um, mm-hmm. this, you know, this kind of balancing of teams, whether they're virtual or in person, things like that. Um, I want to ask you as well, just um, one of the things that really interested me in, in your session was uh, what you said about the kind of parent-child relationship between employer and employee. And you mentioned that in traditional structures, that's often how the relationship works. Um, if that type of a relationship is entrenched in an organization, um, how do leaders kind of bridge the gap to a more adult-adult relationship? Yeah, so it, in in the book that I co-wrote with um, my uh, co-founder, um, Karen Tenelius, the co-founder of Tough Leadership Training, we, we kind of distinguished three things that really help to create a more adult-to-adult dynamic in an organization. And the first is what we call like a, a coaching adult-to-adult way of being and mindset, which is, which sounds kind of abstract, but it's, it, it's connected to this this paradigm, this parent-child paradigm that you mentioned. That uh, we have a kind of automatic way of being as leaders. That is often, you know, I give advice. I feel like I need to know the answers. I can be a bit managerial. And as you say, it's it's a shift to a much more coaching way of being. Much more asking open coaching questions, active listening. Uh, really relating to people's potential. Um, so if I change my way of being as a leader, 
that starts to shift how others show up around me as well. So that's the first part is, is a way of being in a mindset. And then the second part is to involve people more, of course, um, which sounds obvious, but to, to be really explicit about that, to be really clear about what people can get involved in and, and perhaps what they can't, because perhaps there are things necessarily that need to be decided um, top down, for example, but to say, you know, these parts we really want you to get involved in and we're really kind of giving you the responsibility, we're relating to you as being responsible for this part and we want your input, your questions, your engagement. And then the third part, which I think is more um, radical perhaps in terms of a shift, is to talk much more about things under the surface. And what I mean by that is um, we talk about in organizations almost exclusively things above the surface, if you imagine a sort of iceberg. So we talk about budgets and schedules and deadlines and projects and all of these things. But under the surface are things like, you know, dynamics between individuals, collective mindsets, the climate, you know, how it feels in a team, the atmosphere, um, people's way of being. So all of these things affect whether people are willing and open to uh, try new things, for example, whether people are able to work effectively together, whether there's trust. Um, and so a big shift, if you really want to create a more adult to adult culture, is to talk about those things under the surface to say, so it seems like there's a real um, skepticism from people, you know, why are we doing this? Is this just another initiative? So say more about that. What do you think about that? And to really listen to that and bring it up and have it up on the table um, compared to what we usually do, which is, you know, broadcast messages and, and try and do these inspiring PowerPoint presentations and then wonder why people aren't on board, you know? So it's, it's a totally different kind of conversation. So a big part of this transformation is having completely different dialogues. Do you think these types of changes that we've seen during the pandemic um, in organizational structures are here to stay? Um, or do you think that there's always going to be this kind of um, yearning for the, the way things used to be? I think it will be a mix. So I think some organizations are waking up to the fact that, oh, we really don't need to be as centralized or as micromanaging as we thought we needed to be, that people can be productive and get on with things much more than we realized. Um, so let's not reintroduce, you know, when we do return to some semblance of normality, let's not kind of rebake those things back into place. And then sadly, there are organizations that are kind of going the other way or, or going back to that paradigm. And, that, and that's the problem, I guess, with paradigms is that even, even when something new is tested and shown to be effective if I'm still if my worldview is still that no people need to be micromanaged we need to be in control um, it's it's really hard not to go revert back to what I know and what I feel safe with because I just I just can't believe that people uh, could have more freedom and that we could still be effective and productive and things like that so you see examples like you know, we work saying that, oh, your most engaged employees will be the ones that return to the office. And it's just such a limited perspective, you know, that's just not true. So I think what will change is that um, employees will be less tolerant now, because I think the veil has been lifted where it's where I think everyone has felt has felt 
okay, so this can work actually. All that time when you've been telling us it wasn't possible for me to work from home or for us to work remotely, that actually wasn't true. It is possible. It, we were able to do it overnight. And so if you're saying now that that's no longer going to be the case or that we're going to go back to the old ways of working, then do you know what? I might find another place to work. So I think that employers will have more of a responsibility to adapt and be more flexible and and, and the ones that don't and try to revert back, I think will find that they lose some of their best talent. Yeah, it's very much a dynamic situation, uh, rapidly changing. And it's really interesting. And a lot of the, the literature that I've, I've reviewed, there's been this kind of um, clarion call, I suppose, for employees to, you know, take full advantage of the next, say, 12 to 18 months, because in many ways, it's an unprecedented period of leverage in terms of how to redefine the way work is going to look going forward so it's it's going to be really interesting mm. um and in any uh, decentralized organization lisa you know leaders and employees they're expected to take on more dynamic roles and that's something that you touched on in your session with the imi um would you be able to share any kind of success stories in particular of organizations that have championed that kind of model and how it has panned out for them yeah so an organization that i really like to cite as an example is um, a recruitment company called Ian Martin Group and they're about 200 or so employees now I think but when they started um, a journey of becoming a decentralized organization they were much smaller that it was their Ian Martin Group is their parent company and their um, company before was Fitzy so about 10 people and it's been about five years since they adopted self-managing teams and things like that. And then they started to transform the parent organization. And so Ian Martin Group itself has been self-managed for about three years. And they have this brilliant practice that they call the role advice process, where anyone in the organization can trigger a process where they say, hey, I'd like to evolve my role. I think that I could be adding more value here or developing in this place. And I see a need in the organization. Um, and then I seek out advice from peers that I think have relevant expertise or knowledge or insights will be affected by the decision. Um, and then I gather and collect all of that feedback that I get from them. So we have some interviews um, and I, I share what I'm thinking about and I ask them questions and they say, oh, but maybe have you considered this or have you spoken to so-and-so or how would this bit work? And at the end of that, I put forward a proposal, having spoken to all these people, here's what I now propose in terms of how I'd like my role to evolve. And then everyone in the organization does a, a consent-based decision where people can either agree, disagree, abstain if they feel like I don't have enough information or you know I trust the group to make the decision or block and people only block if they think it will harm the organization or move it backwards so I may not love the role but if I think well I don't think it's going to harm us or move us backwards so sure why not um, then I might disagree but the decision can still go ahead so they have this really lovely democratic kind of dynamic organic process for people evolving their roles which means that people develop in a way much more quickly than they would if they were just waiting for you know their annual performance review or, or an opportunity to apply for promotion or you know that kind of thing so that's a really good example to me of dynamic roles in play and it's been really successful for them in terms of helping people be more engaged and finding roles that work for them, identifying new needs in the organization and having a role kind of help the organization develop in that direction. Um, so it's working really well for them. 
Yeah, that's a really interesting model and framework. And I suppose I'm interested just to follow up um, in organizations like that. Have you seen um, signs of kind of increased uh, employee morale, kind of better, you know, I suppose, positive feedback loops being created? And then also, is there a link to increased innovation in the business as well? Yeah, so many of the examples of organizations that go in this direction and I'm sort of hesitant to say this because I also don't want people to feel like this way of working is like a panacea and that, you know, if you do this, it waves a magic wand and you get all of these results because it takes hard work and time to get to this place. But yeah, organizations find that they have much higher levels of employee engagement into uh, high levels of trust, you know, when they do employee, employee, employee engagement surveys, um, much better client satisfaction as well um but also yeah lower um lower absenteeism and, and people taking sick leave all of the things that you know that organizations are after those those measures all go up productivity innovation all of those things tend to increase because people have more autonomy and freedom and as you say there are more feedback loops um, so you can kind of catch things and respond to things much more readily in your session with the IMI, you spoke about leaders making what you call an inner shift. And indeed, a few minutes ago, uh, kicking off this interview, we spoke about the kind of personal qualities that leaders need uh, to bring about organizational change. Um, in terms of making kind of culture change, I suppose, how does that kind of inner shift um, happen uh, for leaders? What, what kind of steps would they have to take to make that happen? And, you know, is it usually a very difficult process? Yeah, so it's definitely a challenging process because for many leaders, all of the qualities and skills that I've developed and I've been rewarded for to get me to this place are also the things that will, in, in a sense, get in the way for me to be a really empowering coaching kind of leader. So I've probably got to where I am now if I'm a leader because I'm smart, I'm driven, um, I'm results oriented. And all of these things mean that I can become parental in the sense that I become overly responsible. I kind of become pushy. Uh, you know, I'm uh, always swooping in and taking care and solving things. And so the first step is to acknowledge and become aware of how, how much of a parent, so to speak, I am, right? That, that I have blind spots um, and I have automatic tendencies and ways of being. So there's like a, a, a stage of confronting that. And I think that comes from being in some kind of environment, whether it's training or whether it's um, a context where I can get some really um, radically candid feedback from people around me and lots of coaching. But I need others to help me see those blind spots. And then once I get that awareness of my pitfalls, then I can start to develop um, new abilities, things like active listening, asking coaching questions, um, listening under the surface, dealing with conflicts in a different way, um, being much more empowering. Uh, and so I, if I can find safe spaces to practice those abilities and practice different kinds of conversations, you know, coaching conversations or conversations where I give feedback, but where I give feedback in an empowering adult to adult way and not a sort of top-down parental way um so i think it's it it's really a, a development journey that needs to happen for that inner shift to take place and i think people in my experience radically underestimate just how much of a shift that's going to be because we're all much better estimators of ourselves 
than other people are. So if you ask managers, like, you know, do you, how much do you give people feedback? Then they might rate themselves like, oh, I think I do it, you know, 70% of the time. And in reality, it's probably more like 20% of the time. So we need that feedback from other people and the opportunity to, to practice and train new abilities, new conversations, so that we can start to shift to becoming a much more coaching leader. Absolutely. And I suppose one thing that's really at the heart of that is psychological safety. And it's such a key element for any organizational structure. But you mentioned there this kind of gap that exists between the reality and the perception um, and actually kind of maybe seeking feedback or you know speaking candidly to your manager about things. Um, so on the subject of psychological safety and it being such a key driver of um, innovation and you know organizational, I suppose, overall happiness, for the employees, how can leaders promote that and I suppose create it within their organization if it if it doesn't exist? Yeah, I was I was doing a, a webinar the other day and I was asking the leaders in that group to to rate themselves on a scale from one to five in terms of psychological safety. So to what degree do you uh, share openly your insecurities, your mistakes, your pitfalls, your you know uncertainties with others, and to what degree do others share theirs with you? Uh, and to really th- think about that, because we tend to we're always sort of doing two jobs. We're always doing our actual job, and then the job of trying to look good. Um, so it it this psychological safety piece often really goes against all of those survival instincts in organizations in our careers, you know, that I want to look good. So it really takes courage to be vulnerable and say, Hey, I made a mistake today. Um, and so to, to start to reflect on uh, to what degree am I open with others and to what degree are others open with me? Or do I sense that other people don't really share that with me? And then to think about in what ways do I, sometimes put the lid on people sharing things or people being uncertain or you know on openness because we can also tend to want to make it comfortable for people so if people are really struggling we can tend to say oh it's okay we can manage it we can do it team and that's me kind of putting the lid on it so psychological safety is really embracing all of those things um, and creating the space for people to have those conversations because that we know from research is what makes the difference between a high performing team and just a you know well-performing team and it makes all the difference when teams can talk about their mistakes and what they learn from them absolutely yeah it's something that's really come out in a lot of research and it's it's a fascinating thing to to dig into um you, you spoke in your session actually as well about um i suppose kind of practical uh, takeaways for leaders what they can actually do to kind of make these changes um happen and one of the things you mentioned was creating team agreements to formalize frameworks for people to do their best work. Um, I'm curious just to ask how that's kind of um, worked out in organizations. And if you could give me any example of one in particular that stands out. Yeah, one of my favorites is an organization called Wellbeing Teams, which is a home care organization in, in the UK, and they're made up of self-managing teams. And they have a really great process that they use with any team, um, either when it's a a new team or when anyone new joins the team, where they start by discussing um, what has worked for you in the past in teams and what hasn't worked for you in the past. So they share with each other, you know, for example, what has worked for me in the past is having really um, a strong feedback culture. And what hasn't worked for me in the past is um, a lack of integrity where people don't 
deliver their promises and don't communicate if they're not able to deliver on their promises. And then they integrate some of Brené Brown's research about um, braving. She has this acronym braving, which um, includes things like boundaries, integrity, accountability. Um, and they, they look at those statements and, and then decide if there are any other team agreements they'd like to add in addition to those statements. And then they vote on the ones that um, they want to keep. Um, and then it's one thing to create those team agreements, of course, and then stick them in a drawer and never do anything with them. And quite another thing to kind of keep them alive and review them. And so they do that regularly and score themselves on, on a scale from one to five. And if it's anything less than a five, then they talk about, okay, how do we want to, um, what, what actions do we want to take so that we can live that agreement even more strongly? Yeah, I suppose that's the real key thing, isn't it? And anything like this is the planning phase versus the actual execution and, you know, agreeing on the framework to make sure it's kind of a, not just kind of a, I suppose, a nice to have, but something that is, you know, very much entrenched. One thing that stood out as well in your session was this idea of leaders uh, seeking what you called ruthless feedback, which I thought was a very lovely way of putting um this, these topics that we've been speaking about, including psychological safety. So why do you think it's so important that um, leaders do seek this kind of ruthless feedback? Yeah, it kind of goes back to my point earlier that we are, that we really tend to overestimate our abilities, our competencies in things. Um, and so I, I like to provocatively say that it's best to assume that you're a dictator and then get feedback to disprove that in a way. Because if, if you if you go around asking feedback, assuming that you're already really coaching, empowering leader, you're probably not, you're, you're so you've sort of already decided, if you see what I mean. So getting Rufus feedback is really valuable. And it's also important because of the hierarchical dynamic. And I think the further up you are in the organization, the more work you need to do to really invite that feedback in because it's it takes a lot of courage for people to give feedback up and they worry that if I give this feedback, am I going to be punished? Are there going to be consequences? So the more senior a leader you are, the more you really need to invite that feedback in. You know, I really want you to honestly, like be, be ruthless with me. Tell me, like, are there any times where you feel like I'm really not listening or I'm micromanaging you? You know, what are the things that I do that you could do better like really inviting in this ruthless feedback because that's the only way that people will then maybe dare to be honest with you um, and, and not assuming that, oh, if I haven't heard anything, I guess I'm doing a good job. No, not at all. It takes courage and a lot of, and a lot of enticement for people to give you feedback. Yeah, it's a fascinating period ahead, really, in many ways, this kind of idea of leaders holding up the mirror to themselves, you know, doing self-reflection, organizations doing the same. And it's in many ways, at least I suppose, it's kind of this, uh, there is no roadmap for the next uh, the next while anyway, uh, with hybrids and everything coming in. I just want to thank you very much um, for your time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. I really enjoyed it.